Welcome to the Recovery Lab podcast. We're glad you were able to join us. Recovery Lab hopes to destigmatize addiction and normalize recovery. Our platform provides an avenue to share the many stories of those that have recovered from addiction, providing for the listener the most basic antidote to addiction. Hope. All right, everybody, we're back. This is episode number 41. 41. 41 of the Recovery Lab podcast series. I'm Drew Hassan. I'm Daniel Anderson. We are the Recovery Lab. Absolutely. Absolutely. You want to take it from here? This is your... Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, first of all, thanks everybody for joining. Um, And if you want to do us a solid, you can like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Um, We are on them all. Uh, and that would really go uh, a long way for us, and we certainly appreciate your continued support. Today, we have a uh, a gentleman here that um, there are um, not a whole bunch of people that I look up to more than this individual uh, joining us today. Um, not only has he been instrumental in helping my family, um, he has been instrumental in helping um, countless individuals find their way out of addiction um and um the fact that he's here with us today um quite honestly i'm i'm, I'm really blown away and and i'm super super honored paul is a um a beacon of light and hope in dallas texas and um and surrounding areas um and uh yeah he's just a phenomenal phenomenal individual a smart man a wise man a very funny man and anytime i'm in the same virtual room or real room with this individual um it, he absolutely is the the light of the room so um uh, paul thank you so much for joining us um so today what we're going to do is um this is just in in the past we've had more of a structured um uh, outline outline um, and I'll be honest with you that made me feel safe and comfortable that we were doing something um, that you know we, we kind of planned it out and everything was supposed to go right um, but um, you know last week we tried the unstructured just conversation um, and I was honest with the guests you know it was it was a little scary for me because everything wasn't planned out you know there was uh, it was just conversation and, um, what, what happened and what resulted as a result of that was just a good, a, a good positive conversation that with, flowed organically, that, that flowed organically with four people that are in and around recovery. So I, I would love to continue on with that, uh, today and, um, let, let's just talk, let's just have a conversation. And I, I think, the the um, the viewer and the listener would would be served well by telling by you telling us a little bit about just just real quick um, how how you got into recovery what it was like uh, and what it's like now like for just five minutes just a brief synopsis and then we'll hop in I really really want people to know who Paul T is. Okay, Daniel, thank you. And if I get carried away, well, y'all just give me the cut it off sign, but it's not going to take me long for this. Uh, You know, my name is Paul T and I'm an alcoholic and I've been sober since uh, October 3rd, I mean, September 13th, 1975. 
And I'm very grateful for that. And I did that through Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to tell you, first off, there's no shortcuts. Uh, most of the people who try shortcuts don't make it. And uh, it's just, you can be blunt. You can't do this with self-knowledge and fear won't keep you sober uh, because we have an illness that is affecting uh, uh, my mind, my body, and my spirit. And uh, I was fortunate enough to go to an MD, my, my internist at that time, who was a family doctor here in Dallas. He sent me to a psychiatrist and uh, the psychiatrist uh, tried to get me to, or asked me if I wanted to use antabuse. He explained it, I drank on antabuse. I don't suggest that for anybody. <laughs> uh, it's a tough way to, uh, it's an easy way to get sick. Let me put it that way. And uh, my uh, life was in shambles when all this was happening. My marriage was on the verge of exploding. My wife was getting sick, watching me get sick. The kids were getting sick, watching mom and dad. And that's alcoholism, if you're not familiar with it. And uh, so they sent me, I ended up at uh, the Preston group of Alcoholics Anonymous, scared to death, like everybody else who comes in first, uh, their first time or two. And it just, uh, people were so kind and welcoming and they didn't get on me and ask me why I did it. They already knew why I did it. They told me or shared with me about themselves, which is what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I want to make this clear. I only have uh, my experience, strength, and hope that I can share with you. And if we get out of that, try to get technical or try to get anything else, I'm not going to be able to help you, but I will listen. Uh, but uh, it just uh, it doesn't work for me. So uh, I found out in Alcoholics Anonymous very quickly, I had to be on the firing line visiting and talking to newcomers and sharing with them what happened to me, just like the guy whose hand I first shook when I came there. I'm 79 years old. I still active in Alcoholics Anonymous. I try not to be one of those old guys. I'll dress this up a little bit. Old guys <laughs> who try to correct and say, y'all are not doing it right. I keep my mouth shut and I do what I can do. I was in Fort Worth yesterday speaking at the Watauga Group, which is a suburb of Fort Worth, at their uh, <clears throat> recovery uh, anniversary. They've got they've been in business over about 25 years, and uh, that was good. And then I hot-footed it over to the Tarrant County, which is where Fort Worth is located. And my sponsor is named John Diggins, and he was, uh, he told me I can use his last name because he's been sober 50 plus years. Uh -huh. uh, <clears throat> and he shared at this uh, convention over there or this dinner in area wide or county wide, uh, and it was very good. And uh, that's what I have to do. The other thing that I've learned when somebody calls me or asks me to do something in Alcoholics Anonymous, my answer is yes. Um, I'm going over uh, in June to speak at one of the harbor groups, one of the groups in Fort Worth on a Sunday morning. I had first tried to get out of that and I refused and then my conscience began to hurt me. 
So I called him back, my buddy who had invited me, and I told him, you know what, I don't really don't have an excuse for not coming. So uh, he's got me signed up, I think, June the 11th for that meeting over there. So, you know, I've been blessed with uh, people in this program who are practicing the program, who have read the big book, who have worked the steps, and there are my guiding lights because that's that's how that's how the change occurs. So I don't have to go get drunk tonight and hurt the people that I love. Right. And that's pretty well it in a nutshell. Awesome, awesome. Well, you know, one of the things that I was very, very fearful of um, when I was first trying to get sober back when I was eighteen was, you know, I had no idea what um what a, a life how to fun just how to have fun in in sobriety how to not be a just complete boring mess um so i guess what i'm interested to to hear from you is um what what do you do in uh to to uh for fun what do you do to to let loose what do you do to um you know, make life rewarding for yourself? Is it service work? Is it, um, what, what, what does fun look like to you? Well, Daniel, that's an easy one to answer, you know, participating in life. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't doing that before I came and and got sober. Um, you know, my service probably is not probably, it is a large part of my life. For an example, Let's just take this day. This morning, my wife and I left the house at 11 o'clock, drove to the little town of Prosper, which ain't little anymore, but uh, we had a grandson playing a, a lacrosse game at 11 o'clock. We hot, after the game was over, uh, we hot-footed it back home, and the priest at our uh, church was celebrating his, uh, they had a party for his 50th wedding I mean, uh, sobriety of his priesthood. We went to that. My wife and I went and ate, came back home, brushed my teeth, and here I am now. Now, <laughs> before this happened, or before I got sober, there's no way in the world I could have pulled that off because I just couldn't get it. I just couldn't get it done. Right. Because, you know, when you're drunk, you get busy. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I do follow my favorite uh, college team, and and they invariably, or a lot of times, get beat. But that doesn't stop me. I watch the Cowboys on TV, but my real thrust of you know excitement of life is sharing this uh, this sobriety with other people. When I and you know it says in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous that because of this and because of our experience, strength, and hope we have the the ability to actually save lives and that's pretty stimulating for me. So that's it. I never want for anything. We're going to Louisiana next week. We got our oldest grandson is graduating from high school. We're going to go down and celebrate with him. And uh, we call it, I think in Alcoholics Anonymous, suiting up and showing up. Yeah. And, uh, it talks about in there some of these things that may not be our favorite thing to go do, but it says in the big book 
that we, we need to ask ourselves, what can we bring to the party or the event, not what we're going to get out of it. Right. And I try to take that to heart. You know, sometimes it may get a little tedious, as they say, but uh, all in all, you know, I'm blessed to be in the position that I'm in. And I consider this my, uh, if you want to call it missionary work, if you want to call it mission in life, but this is where my higher powers ask me to serve. So that's it, Daniel. Awesome. Awesome. Drew, what you got? What do you, to what do you owe the, your longevity, uh, in not many people can put together the, the length of time sober you have. How do you, how do you continue to stay what must only be described as teachable after what is that 47 47 years years. yes sir um well drew that's a good question and uh, you know when we go to an alcoholics anonymous meeting you know i go back in there uh, and i ask my higher power to help me listen to what's going on because you see i don't have advanced warning of where the message is going to come from it could come with somebody with 30 days or 30 minutes or 30 years. My mission uh, is to pay attention and to listen. And you just, just like the other night, I went to a meeting, it was on Friday night, we had a speaker meeting, we had two speakers, and I knew both of them. And I was grumbling under my breath. I wish that they each had had an hour. We'd had one this Friday and one next Friday. Well, I'm not in charge, so I don't have anything to do with that. But the last guy that spoke, my friend Will, said <laughs> he had never gotten in trouble uh, by keeping his mouth shut. <laughs> and I went, now, that's something I can take to the bank, you know. The other thing I like, my friend Oliver said one day at a meeting, and he'd just been traveling in West Texas, and uh, he said uh, – uh, he said, we were talking about living in the now. We talked about attending our side of the street. And he said, out in West Texas, they have a saying when something comes up, if it doesn't pertain to them, they say, it's a whole lot of none of my business. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've got a plate full that I need to take care of. I, I need to sweep my own front porch. And, you know, I, when, you know, you just stay active in it. And when you stay active, I've got a meeting where I go to on Tuesday night. Daniel comes on Zoom to that. <clears throat> there is no telling how much sobriety is in that room from guys with my sponsor with 50 plus years and just a whole lot of sobriety. But the deal is we can go in there and have a meeting on the first step which is just as vital as anything else. And uh, my, I get in trouble when I begin to think I know more than I know. And uh, then I have to back off or my sponsor, I call my sponsor and he sets me straight pretty quick. And uh, I think it's real important too, when you choose a sponsor, you need somebody who's read the book and works a step. And it talks about in the big book uh, that, uh, in order for me to change, there's got to be a necessary, vital, spiritual experience. 
And a lot of people who come in with the church or religious backgrounds get all balled up in that. And they say, well, I'm a Christian and I do this and you don't have to tell me about that, but whatever their comeback is, whatever, and if they're newly sober or can't stay sober, they hadn't had a vital spiritual experience that will keep them sober. And that involved working the steps. And it just, as I mentioned earlier, there's no shortcuts. So uh, every day I wake up, uh, you know, at night I thank him for keeping me sober. Every morning I, I ask him to keep me and ask him to send somebody to help me or send me to somebody that I can help. Well, I salute you for <clears throat> for really sticking to it because I can – I mean, I know how egotistical I am. Yeah, me too. And I, I can only think that after that long, I really would sit at the meeting and my natural inclination to judge what somebody, they're just, they're doing that <laughs> way. They're, yeah. They're, they're, I've seen how this plays out. This yeah. is not going to, this is not going to end well for them. Like you're doing this wrong. Yeah. But somehow, somehow, Sir Paul over here is, doesn't sit there and do Stay that the at course. all. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, since since you've been in and around 12-step programs for as long as you have, have you noticed any discernible trends that are interesting to you or noteworthy, like things that used to be emphasized in meetings maybe that have not as emphasized as, more, as much? Or I'm kind of interested in your take on AA or 12-step work from a historical perspective, because that's a long time. Yeah, it's a long time. Well, uh, it seems like a long time. Uh, I know maybe to somebody else, especially somebody who can't stay sober. But, you know, I uh, <clears throat> there's always people, and there's probably a, a thing afoot now at the general services in New York about we need to change this and we need to get into gender and I'm just, uh, guys, I'm just not going to go there. You know, I call yourself whatever you want to. I am, you have my blessing. I don't care. I don't want to change the big book in my page. Oh, you're talking about the push to amend the text to include. Well, I'm, I'm really not in favor of that. I think you go too far as long as we don't, you know. Uh, and, and I'm, you know, they got people smarter than I am that are, that are taking care of that or trying to or argue about it. They just had a big brouhaha with that. And I don't like to get in that. I don't like uh, election of officers meetings because people go nuts, you know. Uh, but, you know, we have a deal about one day at a time. Now, let me just give you an example about this. The Tuesday night meeting, as Daniel knows, we don't do, they call it chanting about keep coming back. It works if you work it. But they don't want to do that. They want us, they're purist. And, you know, I don't, I don't remember. They say we voted on that when we first started. I, I don't care one way or the other. But if I go to the Preston group, it's, a, we say that after every meeting, every large prayer. Right. And, I'm just not going to get in that debate. It's kind of funny. I, there are others that I, other meetings I go to, and I'm always curious what they're going to do. That's just an example. The meeting I spoke at yesterday at five o'clock, they've had a feed at three o'clock. And uh, so I got there by five. And uh, 
in our group, when we have an AA meeting, we read the preamble and then we read how it works. And I think that's important to get people centered, to get people in the room. You know, I always ask my higher power, get me in the room, get me in a chair, sit all the way down. Because, you know, guys, it's life or death. Right. When I decide I'm going to take a sabbatical, well, then that's when I'm on a slippery slope. And uh, so I just try to stay out of the, the debate society. Uh, if regardless of who you are or where you are, if you want to get sober and you're willing to go to any lengths, then you have every right to be in that meeting and we're, we'll, we'll support you any way we can. That's my take. I really have always loved the beauty in the tradition that says, you know, the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. Right. There's no rules or anything like that. It's, it's no pledge to sign. Right, right, right. No financial commitment. Right. Yeah. It's really, it, it opens the door to, to anyone and everyone. And that's, you know, one of the most incredible things about, about the, about AA. And for me, it's completely changed my life. And, um, I'm, I'm curious, um, what, what are your thoughts on, um, like therapy for folks in recovery? Um, would you say it's a good idea? Would you say it's not necessary? What, what's your thought on that? For me, I'm just going to be perfectly honest. Um, therapy has been absolutely instrumental in my life. Um, and especially especially this this time getting sober um it it has it has been the the difference i feel uh between success and failure what are your thoughts on um psychotherapy or um just is any kind of therapy uh on top of you know working the steps and things like that well i'm gonna tell you <laughs> guys i uh, uh back in the days when i came in it was a kind of a purist I won't call it that for lack of anything else. And they didn't want you taking antidepressants. They didn't think you need to go a therapist. They didn't think you need a psychiatrist. And uh, that has softened somewhat. And my take is you need therapy and it helped you, you know, and it may, I don't know whether a guy or a lady, I don't know whether they need therapy or not, because you know what? I'm not a physician. Right. I'm not, if they need to be on uh, antidepressant, I'm not going there. Their doctor prescribed it. Uh, I think it can be abused, but hell, everything can be abused. So, uh, I, you know, if I, you know, they're just, you know, you just hope that uh, they don't get off track. But if that's what the doctor said that would keep them in the game, well, then, you know, that's between them and their either therapist or psychiatrist or EMD doesn't matter. Right. What What are your thoughts on uh, specifically medications like Suboxone that help um, uh, folks that struggle with opiate addiction? Are you Are you for um, those kinds of medications, or are you not familiar with them, or are they something that you would say, you know, if it helps you, great. If not, great. But you know, at a certain point, you need to get off of it. Would you say they're still sober if they're on those medications or they're not sober? What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Man, that's a loaded question <laughs> right there, boys. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to go there again. I'm not a physician. Yeah. I had the first time I heard that about that drug is I've got a friend 
who has been, uh, he spent the last 10 years of his life in prison. And God bless him, he cannot stay sober. Maybe 10 days, maybe two weeks, maybe a month, maybe 60 days. And then he goes back out with, you know, from drinking to hard drugs. And then he mentioned to me the other night, I said, well, what can we do to help you? And he said, well, I'm already on whatever drug that is that you mentioned, mm -hmm. trying to uh, keep him off of opioids. And uh, you know what? I think we're almost in a realm where we don't know, and I'm not sure medical profession knows. They're just, it's such a terrible uh, epidemic that we're facing. Yeah. Um, man, I don't know what it's going to take. Yeah. to break that you know and then there's people that you know they've been hurt or they stubbed their toe or whatever the hell it is and they get on you know oxycontin or one of those kind of things that makes you loopy i'm not gonna go there either because i don't know what they need to be on yeah if i'm sponsoring somebody i try to direct them and make sure that their physicians stand you know they're staying in close tabs with that but you know i'm not gonna get in the doctor in business I hear that. Well said. Yeah, absolutely. Let me mention something y'all said about the, the only desire is to have a desire to stop drinking. In the when they were forming Alcoholics Anonymous back in the day, and it's probably in some of the old preambles, there was the word honest desire, and then they discovered that a good wet drunk he doesn't know whether he's got an honest desire or not. You know, he may be looking for only temporary sobriety. So they changed that word to just a desire. So that's just, that's for free, guys. <laughs> Thank you. Um, all right. Uh, Drew, what you got, bud? <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't know why I've got this cough. It just hit me. I apologize for it. What are some of the other things that, that you've noticed? Uh, in your exceptional tenure that, that might help somebody trying to stick it out over, you know, for the long haul. Uh, have you had, I can only imagine that the incentive for you to stay as active as you are and to stay grinding it out, going to meetings, having a sponsor, doing the step work, would be the achievement of certain goals along the way that probably exceed, you know, we all have heard a million times. If so, you know, if, if I had written down what I wanted out of getting sober, I would have shortchanged myself, blah, blah, blah. I mean, surely that you must've had things, revelations, uh, a deeper understanding along the way that kind of provides the impetus to keep going. Uh, Drew, one of the things that uh, I try to emphasize, you know, whether somebody I'm asked to sponsor somebody or not, and keep in mind that if I'm asked to sponsor someone, they're doing me way more good, in my opinion, than I do them. Because sure. they keep me on the firing line of everything from soup to nuts. You know, our preamble says, I think it, 
or end the action somewhere says it got to pertain to alcoholism. And my sponsor always tells me, he said, if you're drunk, doesn't everything pertain to alcoholism? We may not know it at the time, but uh, what I strongly suggest, if, and I tell them, I said, if you're not getting out of this program, what we promise you and what the big book, big book promises, you, maybe you need to change sponsors. And then I've got guys that just sponsor hop. They just go around when they hear something they don't want to hear. Well, then they said, I'm going to go ask Fred. You know, he may be, be, be more in tune. And what I found when we asked somebody beside their sponsor, we asked three or four other people their opinion. What we're looking for is somebody to tell them, is, tell me that I'm it's okay doing what I'm doing. Yeah, co-sign whatever it is that they're up to. Right. And, uh, you know, when we, we're talking about alcoholism, we need the facts and we need somebody that's earnest with us. And, uh, you know, that's uh, either we're getting it or we're not. Right. Let me give you an example. Now, when I first celebrated my first birthday uh, in 1976, uh, September, uh, whatever the birthday night was that month. And I wouldn't have missed that, guys, for the world. And I carried my, my uh, desire chip in my pocket until I lost it. And then I had to get another one. I was at a soccer game i lost it went into i don't know what nervous rigor but i got me another one but when i got that first year chip uh i it i couldn't have been happier I, I there was no other place that i'd rather be and daniel i gave your dad on his first birthday i gave him that chip awesome but he didn't know that that was just, he thought it was supposed to be temporary. He gave back to me. So he, <laughs> it's still his chip. So, uh, but our birthday nights, this is really the point I wanted to make. When he gets the first, we start with the old guys like me and work our way down. And we'll get to the one, two, and let's say three. It, we have very, very poor attendance at our birthday nights. Now, I don't know whether everybody has a problem, but birthday night is anybody that celebrates that month. We have a party with cake, and uh, they get to go up to the podium and accept their chip, and then they get to share a little bit if they want to. We have dismal participation from one through three years. Now, I don't know whether to blame that on sponsor. I don't know what to blame it on. I maybe sponsorship or whatever but if i'm sponsoring somebody my response is because they want to know well what is birthday now that's well you've never been no have you celebrated a birthday well no that's well when it's your birthday you need to go and find out what's wrong because we also that's the way we have celebrated other people it might give them some impetus to stay sober tomorrow because that's what all of us are looking for we don't want to drink today and when I get, you know, in my head and get to thinking these strange thoughts, well, then I probably need a meeting. So that's that's one of the main things that I see. Uh, I've got another friend of mine, and he's changed sponsors within the last two years. One, two, three. I believe he's on the fourth one now. And uh, he came to me and asked me not to sponsor him, but he asked me, 
you know, what I thought. And I said, look, you got to follow your conscience, but you may have to ask yourself, why am I ch having to change sponsors so often? Right. And I can't answer that. Maybe you can, but I can't. So. Well, I, I, <sighs> Yeah, I, I I did the same thing, especially in early sobriety. I kind of jumped back and forth. And what do I, I mean? I, I heard something I didn't want to hear or I got my feelings hurt because they said something and I just hopped from, you know, it was. Or you're embarrassed. Yeah, or embarrassed. Absolutely. Or I don't call them for, you know, a number of days and then I feel ashamed and, uh, and, and then I just stop calling altogether, which brings me to the shame topic. And, and bear with me here, if you will, Paul, let's let's take it back, take a step back to the first year in your sobriety. Um, if you're anything like me, when you were in active, um, addiction and active alcoholism, um, you did all sorts of scandalous things that left you filled with shame. Um, and my question is how did you deal with, uh, reckoning with your past or, or with reconciling with your past and how did you begin to to look at those past actions and be able to then help use those to help other people? What what did that look like for you? Was it a slow progress uh, process? Was it something that happened quite quickly? What was it like for that in that first year for you to to be able to kind of be be able to sit in your own skin and and not beat yourself up about what you did in your past? Well, Daniel, I think we all, you know, if you were an active alcoholic out there practicing, uh, it would be very abnormal if you didn't come into the program with some guilt and remorse. In fact, if I'm really, really honest, outside of my wife's nudging or urging, and I say that politely, but uh, uh, it was guilt and remorse that got me in the doors to start with. Right. is that I knew deep down that what I was doing was not right, but I didn't know how not to do it. And when we do the fourth and fifth step, we write all this stuff down and we <clears throat> share it with our sponsor. And uh, which I think that's one of the, you know, the miracles of the program and the fact that we admit it to God, we admit it to ourselves and we'd like to stop there and not share it with our sponsor or someone else, clergyman or whoever you want to share it with. But, you know, we're, I was such a master at rationalization and justification. Uh, the program and encountered guys like me knew that we needed to share that with another person. And what it also says is that I've got to, you know, God forgave me. My sponsor forgave me. Now I've got to spend the rest of my life forgiving myself. And what am I going to do about that? And God has helped me with that. Um, you know, mine was a slow process getting to where I was comfortable with God. I, I called it higher power. The program says I can do that. The program says the requirement is I find a higher power, whatever I want to call it, that is greater than I am. And that's pretty damn easy. There's plenty of things out there greater than I am. And <laughs> I kept calling it higher power, higher power. And finally, over a course of time, I got comfortable with calling it God. You know, it's really the same God that I learned and, and, and knew about or heard about in the 
the Baptist church, but you know, I'm the one that went sideways and, uh, but you know, God has, there are still times, Daniel, and I don't know about y'all, but I can be driving down the road and I can think about something and I just not break into cold sweats, but I go, my God, how sick was I? You know, my wife never traveled with me in my job, but she went She went to San Antonio with me. And the first night, the very first night, we're standing in the uh, Crockett Hotel downtown, or the Menninger Hotel. Nice place. So I'm out drinking all day. Didn't make it back. We were going to go to a nice place for dinner. And then I got in there about 10 or 11 o'clock. And I took her hamburger and fries. That was her first night on the road. And her comment to me was, Paul, if you were trying to discourage me from traveling with you, it succeeded because <laughs> I will never go anywhere with you again. And so, you know what? That's, that's, sim- that's the kind of pain that we cause. Right. Now, you just don't slough that off and say, well, hell, you know, I was sick, I was drunk, I was just, uh, that don't cut it. You know, that doesn't cut it. God has helped me. So today, when I get up and I try to ask myself, what can I do for my wife to help her have a better day? And most days I'll bring her a coffee, uh, her favorite coffee back home when I come after my iced tea run. And those are the kind of things. And I ask for God for ways, show me ways that I can make it up to not only her to whomever, my parents, my both parents are deceased, but, you know, they, there are a lot of things that I could have. And we always say we could have done it different. I wish that, you know, we don't get to do do-overs. Right. We got to go forward. Life is understood backwards, but we got to live forward. Right. And, uh, so I just, uh, for most days, I don't have any of that. There's a, maybe a couple of other ones that I'm not even going to share with y'all because my, I told my sponsor and, uh, you know, it's just, it's that gradual day to day, day at a time is I got to forgive Paul. So, Absolutely. Well, what about this? What, what about, so for me, especially in early sobriety, um, you know, using thoughts, uh, our drinking thoughts certainly crossed my mind and you, you sometimes hear, you know, in meetings and we were talking about this last week that, you know, old boy with, you know, a lot of sobriety will be in there and say, I never think of drinking anymore. I've never, the thought never crosses my mind. And that leaves me thinking like, I don't know. I just kind of feel like that may be a little bit of a lie. I think they're lying. Yeah. So after 47 years and obviously now we're not talking about, um, you know, thoughts and, and cravings and, and obsessions. We're talking about just mental thoughts that, that pass. Do you still have those after 47 years of being sober or are you genuinely, do you genuinely never ever thinking about drinking when a Bud Light come? Well, maybe not Bud Light, but when a, a beer, uh, <laughs> a beer, a beer, um, uh, commercial comes on. Do, do you ever, quickly say, oh, that would be nice. And then immediately obviously say, oh, that's, you know, I got to play the tape through or that's what, what does that look like for you? Or is it, are you genuinely, do you genuinely never think about drinking ever? You know what guys, I don't know whether it's time or effort or age or whatever the hell it is, but I really don't. And I'm not going to say that 
you know, uh, you know, occasionally you can have a drunk dream, which will scare the hell out of you, you know, and I really don't know the purpose of that. And I'm not a psychologist or anything like that. I don't try to interpret my dreams. I just, and, and I might, that, that might not happen again for six months or a year or whatever, but I really don't. Uh, it tells us in the book to think that thought through is that now if you take that drink, you're going to get drunk, you might get arrested, and then you're going to come home and hurt the ones you love. We ne you know, that's, it's just a fast, you know, it's something happened, you know, I stubbed my toe, I think I'll have a drink, because that's about how easy it was way back there. But, you know, I, I really don't. I, I, here's the thing. Don't put yourself in an atmosphere where everybody else is doing that. Right. Now, I have tried to subscribe to that uh, because, you know, I might not be strong enough to whatever in the hell this is going to happen here. I need to be, get the hell out of the way. And if I'm on shaky ground, like I was originally or in the beginning, all I do is say no, politely say no, and then I get my, you know what, to a meeting. And uh, because, you know, it's just, it still have that alcoholic mind and we can't control what comes in it, but we can control what we do with that thought. So, but I, I am blessed with not having to even entertain that thought period because, you know, I, I, I proved over and over again that there's no one drink in me, you know, right. I don't know how to sip it. Uh, I tried to control it. I don't have to do that either. And then I found out I can't anyway. So that's, that's my take. Well, all right, cool, cool. I mean, that's incredible. <laughs> I've got a couple questions for you. Shoot. What is your favorite step? What is my favorite step? Which one's your favorite? I don't, I don't know that I have a favorite. Uh, my favorite, uh, you know, promise is that God's doing for me what I could not do for myself. But my favorite step I probably go to step three more than anything, you know. Is that is that the one when when you're having difficulties, you go back and look at the literature on step three? I here's what I do with it. I say, okay, can I do anything about this traffic jam? No. Why don't I give it to God and see what happens if I do that? You know. If I'm in an awkward situation, I'll do the same thing. I'm going to say, God, you're going to have to help me through this because I'm a little uneasy uh, for whatever reason. And, uh, you know, I, then there's a step 10. If I screw up, I get to, you know, make amends. It talks about doing that pretty promptly. Uh, it talks like in the 12 and 12 that when there's, when I'm upset, guess what? The problem is me. And I hate that, but that's the way it is. So, you know, being upset and antsy is a poor spiritual condition. So my first deal is I got to get to where I am not in that state. And uh, so the quicker I take action on my actions, as far as trying to get make amends, then I need to do that because what happens if you don't do that today, then tomorrow you make another mistake. Now all of a sudden 
you're creating a list. And I don't know how long that list has got to be before I'm deciding that I'll just have a drink of whiskey. I don't want to make all these amends. Well, Amen to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just can't put it off, you know. If you want to be miserable, go ahead, you know. The the step three in the 12 and 12 contains my very favorite bit in just about all the AA literature about how, you know, a life run on self-will is a bone-crushing juggernaut whose final yeah. achievement is ruin. Yeah. And they, they don't <laughs> mince words. No, that's great. <laughs> a bone-crushing juggernaut. <laughs> all right, I've got a follow-up question. This is one of my favorite things to learn from people that have been able to keep at it for this long. And I think you've touched on it about the formula you employ to deal with adversity. So you gave the, 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 the example of the traffic jam, you know, something that's just a source of aggravation for all of us. And there's truly not a damn thing you can do about it, but walk us through Paul has a bad day. What does Paul do? What is the formula Paul employs to overcome adversity on a day-to-day basis? Well, I was just going to mention a while ago, and I I touched on a little bit, is that life comes at us at point-blank range. You know, whether it's life, death, divorce, you know, I mean, the list goes on and on. And it could be you know, literally stubbing my toe on top of whatever else might have happened that day. Uh, <clears throat> I'll give you an example. I, uh, I'm i in the real estate business, and I helped a guy sell, he and his sister sell a track of land uh, south of uh, Dallas. And we worked on it a long time. Uh, there's a whole lot of extenuating circumstances. And I had a long about, it took five years and I'd just let you know that I have tenacity and I don't like to give up. <laughs> and uh, I said, this thing's not going to beat us. We'll find a buyer, etc." Well, my guy began to get ill during the uh, fifth year of this. We did find a close in September. Now, this guy wasn't a bosom buddy. He was a good friend. I've known him. You know, I was about seven or eight years older. I've known him since he is 10 years old, I'm going to guess we were both in the dairy business, but I go to see him in the hot. We closed on September 13th. I go to see him in the hospital uh, the next week, I guess it was. No, maybe in two weeks. And uh, his wife was upset because I came to the hospital, but it didn't say no visitors out on the door. I did not go by there and discuss the deal or anything i'd gone by there because he was my friend and that's what the right thing to do well she took offense to that wrote me a letter and told me how much she hated me and how how sorry i was you know and my wife politely told me because this is the kind of bride i have she's paul everybody is not going to like you. I said, why? <laughs> you know, she said, well, just because. Let's just leave it at that. So, you know what? I had to I had to pray and go to a meeting because within two weeks, my friend died. And uh, I didn't know it was going to be this serious. I, the words of him when I left the hospital room, Paul, now I may die and 
I just kind of, you know, blew that off. I said, ah, you're not going to die. You know, shook hands with him and got out of there because I knew his wife was just ill at ease with me being there. It's kind of an eerie situation, but that's, you know, that's where we find ourselves sometimes. So in any case, I, uh, uh, you know, when he, when I got the news that he died, I was at a meeting that night and I knew that my, uh, what I could do about this situation was zero, zero. And I had to accept the facts as they were, you know, Sometimes I think drunks, along with a lot of other people, we have trouble dealing with reality, you know? And when reality confronts us, then, you know, the problem and the hurt and the pain comes with our lack of acceptance. And so when I finally accepted that my friend Cliff was gone, um, and uh, I still have plans to go by the cemetery where he can have our last conversation and sort of relive some of our ordeals over the last five years. But I would rather do that in person, but I'm not going to have that uh, opportunity. So, but I called my sponsor and the sponsor got me squared away. I said, Paul, that's just the way it is. And so you know, acceptance sometimes is hard. Sometimes we've got to go through pain and we've got to go through, you know, uh, grieving or whatever the four or five stages are. And then we finally get to the, you know, the rainbow of acceptance and you don't like it, but that's the way it is. So that's probably, you know, the best thing I can do. And it doesn't matter whether it's major problem or not. It's just, Something that's got me wrapped up and I need to get unwrapped somehow. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we are running out of time. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time and I'm super grateful again for you joining us. I'd like to end with this. Um, what, when, when you see a newcomer in a meeting um, and you go up and, and introduce yourself um, after the meeting, uh, if, if that's something you do, what do you tell someone that you you know um, will help them? What do you say to someone when when what they have said in the meeting perhaps is a very good indicator that this person has reached the end of their rope? Um, they have they have very little hope um, that the future could could change, uh, and and they are at their wits end and bankrupt financially, and and every single emotionally completely bankrupt what do you tell to that what do you tell that person uh when you go talk to them at the end of a meeting uh okay guys what i have to remember uh that even though it's the end of the rope and uh, but y'all know that that may not be enough you know we may have tied a knot in it or whatever it is to the rope and keep hanging on but you know all i can do and here I am with X number of years, but I still remember my first night in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I can go tell him how it was for me. Uh, obviously, keep coming back. I said, please give us a thorough try, maybe. Uh, 90 and 90 are the magic words at our group, and uh, everybody doesn't want to sign up for 90 and 90 because, you know, their wife bowls on Tuesday or some damn thing. Uh, but 
I don't know what that has to do with it, but uh, <laughs> the deal is that the real reality is that some of those people that are even at the end of the road are not going to make it. If they can go find a better way, if they go find their higher power in church or some other organization, my hat's off to them. But I do try to emphasize that we in this meeting will help you. We'll go to any lengths, but you got to be in the meeting. You've got to come to meeting. Do the footwork. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and drunks don't want to hear that, you know, you know, it's just something about it. And I said, well, yeah, I don't, you know, that's what I'll do. I try to give them my number if they want it. I do believe that in a meeting when somebody's brand new, that the younger members of the group have a better shot at him than somebody 47 years. They can't fathom that long. You know, they may not even be that old. Right. Uh, and I just, uh, you know, you pray that they're all right. And you really know you're into the ball game when you can go back the next night and you thought about this person all day long and wondered and wondering if he's going to come back to the meeting the next night. And then when you get there and he didn't drink whiskey and you say, yay, <laughs> you know, uh, so, uh, you know, the doors are open. We offer the, our experience string hope guys. And it's a one day at a time. I said, can you stay sober today? He said, oh yeah. You know, I said, okay. See you tomorrow. And, uh, that's what I try to do because it's, we found out in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I hear it around some, is that if they really want to get sober and they're serious about it, I can't say anything to keep them from coming back. And if they're not ready, I can't say anything to keep them from going back. So, you know, timing is everything. Absolutely. Awesome. Drew, you got anything else? No, 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 no. Paul, thank you so much. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Uh, we are super grateful for you and uh have a great night we'll see you on the flip okay, side okay guys thank y'all for asking me and it was a good deal thanks yes, sir thank you paul bye bye-bye recording stopped